0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, most of the time, when, when we talk about mining disasters and history, they tend to play out really similarly. There's usually an underground fire or explosion or some kind of collapse that kills some of the people working in the mine while trapping others, and then we have a whole rescue situation. Usually the casualties are the miners themselves and their rescuers, and then sometimes working animals like horses. Another running theme is safety precautions that could have prevented the whole disaster that were either ignored or just didn't exist yet. That is one of the reasons why there is only one episode dedicated just to a mining disaster in our archive. That is the 1906 Courier mining disaster, which we covered back in 2016. That's not to say we're never going to talk about another of these disasters, but they do tend to be uncannily similar.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's come up. I think you've probably had this happen, too, where I'm looking around at possible topics and I'll be like, oh, this is a mining thing. This is really similar to that one we did last year. So yeah. then I back off and find something else.
0: Yeah, we have the same problem with fires. A lot of the fire episodes <laughs> play out in just an uncannily similar trajectory. So today's disaster is an exception to a lot of what I just said. In 1966, a mining disaster in Abervan, Wales, killed 144 people it was a completely preventable tragedy, so that lines up. but none of the victims were in the mine itself, and hundred and sixteen of them were children.
1: So brace because it's not an, it's not a fun one.
0: It's really not. Yeah, it's I wasn't planning to do this episode. I was in fact, getting research for completely unrelated stuff and stumbled across this one sentence. Mention of
1: this and then said, I, now I have to find out this, what happened. Yeah. So people in Wales have been using coal since prehistory and the first efforts at deliberate coal mining there started in about the 15th century. But it wasn't until the 18th century that coal mining started to become a major industry in Wales. And with the industrial revolution, it really started to flourish.
0: By the 19th century, other industries were growing up in tandem with coal mining. There was a whole network of canals, railroads, and ports that allowed the coal to be transported around southern Wales and then shipped elsewhere. By 1920, 271,000 men were working in Welsh coal mines, and coal was the nation's single biggest industry.
1: And at its peak, the Welsh coal mining industry was particularly dangerous. In addition to the typical threats of explosions, collapses, and toxic gases, the seams in the South Wales coal field tended to be very fragile, with the area's geology particularly prone to collapse. Between 1851 and 1920, there were 48 disasters and 3,000 deaths in the South Wales coal field. In addition to more minor day-to-day accidents and injuries, uh, as well as illnesses and diseases that were just essentially occupational hazards.
0: Yeah, the coal was a high quality, but getting it out of the ground came at a pretty high cost. The Welsh coal industry really started to decline Pretty rapidly after World War I, though, shedding hundreds of mines and hundreds of thousands of jobs by the 1930s. In 1947, in part to try to protect what was left of it, Wales nationalized the coal industry, including making some investments into improvements and in safety. After this point, Welsh coal mines were overseen by the National Coal Board.
1: By the 1960s, the nationalized coal industry in Wales was still alive, but it was really struggling. Even so, mines continued to be the major employer in a number of towns dotted along the South Wales coal field. One of these was Abervan, many of whose residents worked at the Merthyr Vale Colliery, which had been established in 1869.
0: Getting the coal out of this or any other mine was not particularly clean or efficient. By the 1960s, Merthyr Vale Colliery was producing about 36 tons of waste a day. This included coal waste, ash, and sludge, collectively known as spoil. And it also included general debris, like broken cables, pieces of pipe, broken up bits of concrete, and the like. The method of
1: dealing with this waste was to put it in an outdoor pile known as a tip. This was a standard practice in the industry. There were about 500 coal tips in South Wales at the time. And the tribunal report that followed this disaster described it this way, "...rubbish tips are a necessary and inevitable adjunct to a coal mine, even as a dustbin is to a house. But it is plain that the miners devote certainly no more attention to rubbish tips than households do to dustbins." These coal tips could be quite treacherous.
0: Coal is often found mixed in with layers of clay and shale, and the material tends to be pretty wet, so if you put such a mixture into a giant pile, it's going to be naturally prone to shifting and sliding around. A 1966 paper in Quarterly Journal of Engineering Geology, which was entitled Rapid Failures of Colliery Spoil Heaps in South Wales Coalfield, described 21 rapid failures that had happened between 1898 and 1965. Fortunately, none of these, which were A lot like landslides. None of these caused any known loss of life, although they had destroyed property, buildings, vehicles, and roads.
1: Do you know how big these tended to be? Huge.
0: Colossal. Like, giant. They look like big hills or mountains.
1: I mean, we're putting out... Dozens of tons of waste each day, so it makes yes. sense that they would be massive, but yes. just to get a sense of scale, I wanted to mention them
0: yeah, and we have we have some more specific figures in terms of the one that actually caused today's disaster, but yeah, that when you there are still these exist still uh, all over the world in places that there have been coal mines, and some of them really look like that is the local mountain right there, then it's really a local mountain made out of
1: coal spoil leftover stuff, gotcha. And the wetter that these piles got, the more unstable they became, which was also well-established. That wasn't a secret. Everybody knew it. Professor George Knox had written Landslides in South Wales Valleys in 1927, which outlined the dangers to tip stability that came from uncontrolled water. After Professor Knox's time, changes to coal processing led to another type of waste, tailings, just sort of an oozy, wet sludge of very fine particles tips that included both traditional spoil and tailings tended to have more issues with water-related shifting and sliding.
0: In spite of the known hazards and the history of landslides, these tips were not really regulated in any way. The National Coal Board had no official policies or procedures governing where they should be placed or how they should be inspected or maintained. The closest thing to some kind of official direction was a memo written by an engineer at Powell Dufferin Company after a slide in 1939. This memo outlined some common sense strategies for tip safety. I'm going to say as a person who is not an engineer or someone who works in the coal mining industry, these make a lot of basic sense. Uh, limiting the height of the tip arranging its slope and surrounding drains to allow the water to flow away from it, and never tipping over springs or
1: waterlogged ground. This memo was written before the creation of the National Coal Board, but Clifford Jones, who went on to become a National Coal Board engineer, got a copy of it from his father, who had been an engineer at Powell Dufferin before the coal industry was nationalized. And after a 1965 incident in which a tailing disposal site collapsed, Jones remembered the old memo, dug it out, added guidance about disposing of tailings, ideally separated from other spoil, and recirculated it. Even that small amount of direction wasn't being
0: followed at the tips on Meneth Merthyr, or Murther Mountain, above the town of Abervan. The Merthyr Vale Colliery had started creating tips on the mountain in the 19-teens, and by 1966, there were seven tips— They were situated between a series of streams and drains that flowed toward the valley. These tips varied in height from 40 to 200 meters, or 131 to 656 feet. Spoil was transported from the mine up the mountain by a tram, and then a crane was used to dump the tram car's contents onto the top of these
1: piles. Once a tip had reached the end of its usable life for some reason, the company would just start a new one. Tip 7 had been started in 1958 after a farmer complained that spoil from tip 6 was spilling onto his land. The site was chosen without a survey or much scrutiny at all. It just seemed to be the only available site on the mountain, and its proximity to tip 6 made it easy to just move the equipment.
0: Yeah, there was a whole process that they were going to need to go through if they were going to move to a completely different tipping site. But adding a new tip in an already existing complex did not have a lot of scrutiny at all. So they basically said, okay, we're going to move it over here. By 1962, Tip 7 had expanded to the point that its base was covering a spring. And by 1966, it had grown to 34 meters or 111 feet tall. It contained about 229,300 cubic meters or 300,000 cubic yards of coal waste. It was also known to be unstable. After the base extended over that spring, it pretty much immediately started experiencing issues with sinking and slumping, and it had a major slide in 1963. Tip 7 was also the only one on the mountains that contained tailings, which wasn't the cause of the disaster, but did make the water-related hazards uh, greater than they would have been without it.
1: The tipping crew at Merthyr Vale never saw Clifford Jones' 1965 memo due to a breakdown in communication within the NCB. They had no specific training or guidance in how to manage the tip. Tip 7 failed at nearly every guideline that the memo outlined. It was very tall. It was placed on a steep, porous slope that eventually covered a spring. It also contained both tailings and traditional spoil, and on top of all that, it was above an elementary school. Residents of
0: Abervan had uh, had raised concerns about the tip and its proximity to the school and the rest of the town, especially after that 1963 slide. For example, Borough and Waterworks engineer DCW Jones wrote a number of letters to raise the alarm about Tip 7 beginning that same year. And a letter to the district public work superintendent dated July 24th uh, he wrote under the heading danger from coal slurry being tipped at the rear of pantglass school he said that he considered the situation to be extremely serious writing quote the slurry is so fluid and the gradient so steep that it could not possibly stay in position in the winter
1: time or during periods of heavy rain DCW Jones sent another letter on August 20th, 1963, this time to the NCB's Area Chief Mechanical Engineer, D.L. Roberts. He stressed the danger to people and property and the dangers of winter weather and stormwater on the tip.
0: D.L. Roberts sent a letter back on March 13, 1964, which ended, quote, As you will appreciate, these tailings are very difficult to handle, and we are very careful in disposing of this material, so as not to inconvenience any person or persons, and therefore we would not like to continue beyond the next six to eight weeks
1: in tipping on the mountainside, where it is likely to be a source of danger to Pancla's school. Apart from the letters about the coal tip, there had also been letters and complaints from residents about persistent flooding of parts of Abervan because of shale and slurry from the tips that had blocked natural waterways. These are just examples.
0: These were complaints that came in from Engineer DCW Jones, from the council, and from residents. But none of these complaints were heeded, which ultimately led to the disaster that we'll talk about after a quick sponsor break. <music> Wales had been a mining town for almost a century, and for about 50 years it had existed in the shadow of spoil tips along Merthyr Mountain. There were farmhouses on the mountain slope between the tips and the town, and the mountain itself was a place for recreation. Children played there. Families went on picnics there. Even as residents, the council, and engineers raised concerns about the proximity of the tips to the town and to the school, For the most part, this mine and the tips were just a fact of life. But that changed
1: on October 21st, 1966. When the tip and crew arrived for work that morning, they noted that the tip had sunk by about nine meters, creating a depression under the crane track. One of the men went back to the colliery to tell their manager about it because they no longer had a phone connection because the wire had repeatedly been stolen. There was a lot of conversation about whether a phone connection would
0: have helped. And the ultimate uh, the ultimate decision was that this happened so quickly that it, it would not have. The rest of the crew moved their equipment back from the edge of this depression. By the time they were done, though, it seemed like the tip had sunk even further. They decided to move everything even farther back, but first to stop for a break and have a cup of tea before they went on with their work. This break likely saved all of their lives.
1: Not long after 9 a.m., the crane driver, Gwen Brown, saw the tip seem to rise, at first slowly and then rapidly, and then it vanished. While
0: the weather at the top of the mountain was clear, down in the valley it was very foggy with low-lying clouds. The visibility was only about 50 yards, so the mountain was almost invisible. Inside Panklas Junior School, it was the last day of school before midterm break, the students had just returned to their classrooms from a morning assembly when they heard a very
1: loud roar like thunder or a jet engine. At about 9.15 a.m., a wall of liquefied coal waste described as a dark, glistening wave hit Pant Glass School and several adjacent houses. It poured around and through the school and the homes, both crushing and filling them before flowing across the street through two more rows of houses and into another street. It had also destroyed a farm on the way down the mountain, killing the family who lived there. As it came to rest, about 140,000 cubic meters of previously liquefied debris began to harden like concrete. At
0: 9.25 a.m., Merthyr Tidville police received an emergency call that said, quote, I have been asked to inform that there has been a landslide at Panklas. The tip has
1: come down on the school. Work at the colliery stopped immediately, with the miners going to work at the rescue. Miners came in from other nearby collieries as well, along with around 2,000 emergency workers and citizens. Using shovels, buckets, and household pots and pans, people formed bucket brigades to try to move the debris out from around the school. Some parents resorted to using their bare hands to search for their children.
0: Whenever somebody thought they heard a cry or some kind of movement under the debris, a whistle would be blown and all movement would stop while everyone stayed silent and listened. But nobody was removed from the wreckage alive after 11
1: a.m. The situation inside the school was gruesome. Most of the deaths were due to suffocation, skull fracture, or severe physical trauma. Some of the victims had been dismembered by the force of the landslide. David Bannon was the school's deputy head teacher, and when his body was recovered from the wreckage,
0: he was cradling those of five of his students. Later on, his son, who was 13 at the time of the disaster, theorized that the students had heard the sound of the slide and had run to his father, who had taken them all up in his arms before the landslide hit.
1: Bethania Chapel was used as a temporary mortuary, with the bodies being laid out on the pews and covered in blankets. Nurses and volunteers cleaned off the soil and made notes of the appearances and belongings of the the bodies to help with identification. The bodies that were really badly damaged or dismembered were marked with notes not to be viewed. Eventually, the chapel became so full that the bodies had to be carried to the upstairs gallery with stretchers supplementing the pews.
0: Since there were no government offices nearby, burial and cremation certificates were issued from a fish and ship shop that was five doors down from the chapel.
1: Coffins were brought into Abervan from elsewhere in South Wales, as well as the Midlands and Northern Ireland. Hundreds of embalmers arrived the Sunday after the disaster to clean and dress the identified bodies. And once they were in coffins, they were removed to a second temporary mortuary at Abervan Calvinistic Chapel to be held until their burial.
0: Because of the scale of the disaster and the fact that so many structures were destroyed by the slide, the city and police went to great lengths to make sure everyone was accounted for. This was particularly necessary since some of the children inside the school lived in destroyed houses that were nearby so if their parents had been killed in their homes, there was no one to come to the chapel to look for them. Police conducted house-to-house searches, and they cross-referenced school records, tax records, and the like to make
1: sure that no one had been overlooked. In the end, 116 children and 28 adults, including the school's headmistress and four teachers, died. Most of the children were between 7 and 10, although the youngest was a three-month-old that was killed at home.
0: Eighty-one children, and Gwyneth Collins, a mother who was killed in her home while her two sons were killed at school, were buried at a mass funeral on October 27th. Those who wanted their loved ones to have their own service or burial elsewhere did.
1: Lord Alfred Robins of Waldingham, chairman of the National Coal Board, arrived on the scene about 36 hours after the disaster. He told a TV reporter that the cause of the disaster was a spring under the tip that no one had known about and that no one could have known about. But the locals contradicted that immediately. That spring was something they had always known was there. In fact, the tipping crew had been in the habit of drinking from the spring before the base of the tip covered it up. Lord Robins was also heavily criticized for not coming directly to the disaster scene but instead attending the ceremony to install him as chancellor at the University of Surrey first.
0: There were naturally immediate calls for an inquest and we will talk about that inquest and its findings after one more quick sponsor break. Mm-hmm. After the Abervan disaster, Prime Minister Harold Wilson ordered a tribunal under the terms of the Tribunals of Inquiry Act of 1921. This tribunal's basic intent was to establish what happened and why, whether it was preventable, and what could be learned from it. Cledwyn Hughes, Secretary of State for Wales, led the inquiry, which launched on October 26, with Judge Edmund Davies presiding.
1: The general public had doubts about this. Based on the response to past disasters, there were worries that the whole thing was going to be glossed over. This was compounded by the attorney general restricting the media from speculating on the cause of the disaster.
0: But in the end, the report issued by the tribunal did not sugarcoat anything. It was released after a 76-day investigation, which was, at the time, the longest in British history. Over those 76 days, they heard testimony from 136 witnesses and they examined more than 300 exhibits.
1: That report, which was issued on August third, 1967, is scathing. Quote, The Abervan disaster is a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, of failure to heed clear warnings, and of total lack of direction from above. Not villains, but decent men, led astray by foolishness or by ignorance or by both in combination, are responsible for what happened at Abervan. The report also makes it very clear who should be responsible.
0: Quote, Blame for the disaster rests upon the National Coal Board. It is shared, though in varying degrees, among the NCB headquarters, the Southwestern Divisional Board, and certain individuals. The legal liability of the NCB to pay compensation of the personal injuries, fatal or otherwise, and damage to property, is
1: incontestable and uncontested. The report notes that the tip never should have been on top of the spring, that the site had not even been adequately examined or analyzed for use as a tipping site in the first place. It documents repeated failures to pass important information about managing the tip down to the people doing the work or from the tip crew up to management. There are numerous illustrations, diagrams, charts, and reports that boil down to the fact that the disaster was completely preventable and should have been prevented, not just something that was preventable in hindsight. Even though this report was incredibly clear and well-documented,
0: it did not lead to any ramifications for the NCB. No one was fired, fined, or faced any criminal charges. Although Lord Robins offered to resign, that offer was refused, and there's also a pretty cynical read on his timing of making that offer— he made it after visiting several South Wales coal towns and and denouncing nuclear power while he was there, which bolstered his popularity among the mining communities who thought nuclear power would threaten their own livelihood. The NCB also refused to acknowledge its responsibility for the majority of this inquest, even though that responsibility had been acknowledged in private before the tribunal even began.
1: The tribunal report described the NCB's financial liability as Incontestable. Even so, the NCB refused to accept blame or to pay for things like rebuilding the school, removing the remaining tips from the mountain, or raising and rebuilding Bethania Chapel, which congregants felt too traumatized to even use after its service as a temporary morgue for more than a hundred children. The Coal Board was reluctant to even pay reparations to the victims' families, initially suggesting 50 pounds per person and then eventually raising that to 500 pounds.
0: Most of the money for these things instead came from the disaster fund that was raised in the wake of the tragedy. More than 90,000 contributions to the fund totaled more than 1.6 million pounds, only one memorial fund in the U.K. has ever been larger, and that was the one raised for Diana, Princess of Wales. It was finally £150,000 of disaster fund money that was spent to remove the rest of the tips from the mountain above Abervan. The NCB kept insisting that these tips were safe, while the people of Abervan insisted that they could not possibly feel safe living under them. That money was finally returned to the Disaster Fund in 1997.
1: The Disaster Fund had its own share of complications and issues. The Charity Commission actually proposed asking parents how close they were to their children and paying only those who said they were close. Gosh, that is horrifying. Uh, Families were worried that if they accepted donations from the disaster fund, it would prevent them from being able to accept compensation from the NCB. Most of the people administering the charity didn't actually live in Abervan, And in many cases, the village did not feel well represented in the decision-making process.
0: In addition to paying for repairs and rebuilding that should have been covered by the NCB and were incontestably the responsibility of the NCB. The charity fund paid for white archways at the mass burial site at the cemetery, a memorial garden on the site of the former school, a new community hall, donations
1: to victims' families, and scholarships. In addition to the tragic loss of life, the financial concerns, and the rebuilding effort, this disaster was emotionally devastating to the village of Abervan. Similarly to what we discussed in the New London School Explosion, tensions arose between families who had lost children and those who had not. Many people reported survivor's guilt, and although the term post-traumatic stress disorder had not been coined yet in 1966, the symptoms of that were clearly widespread. At least 20 premature deaths were reported among parents who lost children.
0: The sense of guilt and trauma was compounded by the general manner of South Wales. The temperament of the era was a stoic one, and this was particularly true in a mining town, where danger and death were an everyday part of life, and the industry that fueled the town's economy was one that was viewed as particularly masculine. A lot of survivors, children and adults alike, did not talk about the disaster for decades afterward. The 50th anniversary of the disaster in 2016 was a national observance, with some survivors talking about it then for the first time and others still not
1: talking about it at all. The disaster at Aberfan did lead to changes to the coal industry in how it handled tipping. The tribunal report recommendations included addressing the lack of regulations of coal tips and requiring that the tips should be treated as civil engineering structures with laws and codes in place and with the people managing them trained to do so. The Mines and
0: Quarries Tips Act of 1969 followed, extending the earlier Mines and Quarries Act 1954, The 1969 Act is, quote, an act to make further provision in relation to tips associated with mines and quarries to prevent disused tips, constituting a danger to members of the public and for purposes
1: connected with those matters. Ironically, Lord Robins went on to chair a health and safety review, which led to the Health and Safety at Work Act of 1974. Yeah, that Tribunal report was pretty uh, clear and like, we,
0: we don't think anybody is a villain here. But in the aftermath of all this, he is the person that was most often painted as a villain. Right. Uh, not just for his own decisions, but for his manner in dealing with the tragedy after the fact. Today, the coal industry in Wales is effectively gone. By the 1980s, it was steeply in decline and then disrupted by a lengthy strike in the middle of the decade, which began not long after an announcement that 20 mines were to be closed. That strike ended in 1985, even though the National Union of Miners and Management had not been able to work out an agreement.
1: Numerous collieries closed over the next decade, including Merthyr Vale, which closed on August 25, 1989. The industry was privatized again in 1994. The last of Wales' deep coal mines closed in 2008. A few remaining open pit and drift mines still operate in Wales today. Yeah, when the Merthyr Vale mine
0: closed, that had been a major employer in Abervan. So that led to all of the kinds of social and economic problems that happen when a place's major employer goes away. And that had actually been one of the things that was discussed in the context of this disaster. People feeling like they should have made a much bigger fuss about those tips, but they were afraid that if they did, that the mine would just close and then they would have a tip above their town and no job. And that, I think, compounded the guilt for a lot of people. Like, did, did I contribute to this by not making a bigger a bigger fuss about the tips? There are still tips, scattered, around Wales, and around the rest of the world in places that there are coal mines. Some of them that were determined to be unsafe have been removed. The ones that were above Abervan were removed at the request of the residents eventually. Others of them have been landscaped over. But the disposal of mine waste continues to be an issue anywhere in the world that there are mines. Like, there are still lots of mines and ex- or lots of tips uh, in existence around the world today. Some of them are a lot cleaner than they used to be. Um, and the idea is, well, one day if we close the mine, we can fill it in with all of this removed rubble. Right. But yeah, there's like a whole series of environmental and economic issues connected to what to do with the other stuff that comes out of the
1: coal mine in addition to the coal. Yeah. It's, it is a multi layered problem. Uh, that's a depressing episode, Tracy.
0: I know, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I wrote such a depressing episode. <laughs> I really, <laughs> I have, I think, four different episodes that I was requesting and grabbing the research for. And like I said at the top of the show, like I read this one sentence reference to this and kind of went, okay, but now this is all I can think about and I'm not going to stop thinking about it until I find out what happened and
1: then tell everyone. Um, do you have listener mail that's less, uh, depressing maybe? Kinda, I have a couple corrections first.
0: Um, in our recent episode about the Fort Shaw Indian school girls basketball team, for reasons that are inexplicable to me, I said that this town of Springfield was in Connecticut when it's in Massachusetts. I don't know what was going on there.
1: I just messed that up. Well, uh, <laughs> uh maybe it's the Simpsons thing where there is a Springfield in every state. Yeah, there are lots of Springfield. Like that's why the Simpsons will never say what state they're in and Springfield yeah. because there is a Springfield in every state they never have to. My brain
0: auto-completed the wrong state for some reason. Uh my other correction is that in our episode about the the uh, three women from the Protestant Reformation, I said that the great schism took place in 1504. It did not. It took place in 1054, and that was right in the notes. So it is another awesome example of Tracy saying different words than what was directly in front of my
1: face. Uh, numbers always trip me up. I'll say my brain will just shuffle them for me, and things well, <laughs> will happen at different times on the world stage. But yeah, when when we had that whole
0: deal in the uh, Esther Cox Great Amherst Mystery. Episode where I said that her mother died before she was born. Uh-huh. Uh huh. When I was tweeting corrections about that, I was like, other popular misspeaks on our show are changing the first two digits of any year to nineteen because that also happens over and over.
1: Yeah, I'll change them to any year. My brain yeah. just goes, hey, uh, let's just shuffle these. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I also <So> grade... <laughs> shuffle months. <laughs> April and August, my brain will flip,
0: which you is ridiculous. Think... You would think after four years of doing this, we would be uh, better at at saying things that are directly in front of our notes. Uh, So, yeah, the Great Schism was 500 years earlier than I said it was, which was part of the point of it even being in that episode. So that's my correction corner for the day. I also have actual mail. It's brief because I also had corrections to talk about. Paul has written to us about Theodosia Burr-Alston Paul says, I'm listening to the podcast owned by your predecessors about Burr's conspiracy. They drop a very interesting detail. Many of Burr's personal papers were lost when Theodosia was lost at sea. So the disappearance of Theodosia was the disappearance of Theodosia part of a broader scheme to hide forever the truth about Burr's conspiracy. One more theory. Paul. Thanks, Paul. I did mean to mention that in the episode about Theodosia. She had, among her personal effects... A lot of her father's personal and professional papers, and they were all sealed in ten boxes. Her, that's the ten, the material, not ten, the number. Um, her father had left them in his care when he had fled to Europe and she was bringing them back to him aboard the Patriot when the Patriot disappeared. Uh, this was actually given as a reason why one of his earliest biographers wrote his biography while he was still alive. He was basically like, we got to do this now because all the man's papers were lost. So thank you, Paul, for writing to bring that up. If you would like to try it to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Mist in History all over social media. So we're at Facebook.com slash Missed in History. Our Twitter is Missed in History. Our Pinterest and our Instagram are Missed in History. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you'll find show notes for all of the episodes that we uh, have done together, Holly and I. You will also ha- find a searchable archive of all of our previous episodes. So, come and see us at mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com